WQXR, in conversation. Beethoven was Stuart Goodyear's first great love. At the age of five, the Canadian pianist and composer spent a day listening to all 32 of Beethoven's sonatas in one go. And that experience has guided him ever since. Goodyear is now one of the world's top Beethoven interpreters. Earlier this year, he released a new recording of Beethoven's complete piano concertos on the label Orchid Classics. A few weeks ago, I caught up with him over Zoom from his home in Toronto. I'm Zev Kane. You're listening to WQXR, Classical New York in Conversation with Stuart Goodyear. Stuart, you perform music by a really wide range of composers, but Beethoven seems to be particularly special for you. You recorded all of his sonatas in 2012. You've just recorded his piano concertos. And I know you got hooked on his music at a very, very young age. Can you talk about your initiation into the world of Beethoven? Um, I came from a half English and half Trinidadian background. My mother was born in Trinidad and she came over to Toronto in 69. She met my father at the University of Toronto. They got married in Toronto. They had their honeymoon there. And a few months before I was born, my father died of cancer. So I never knew my father. So it was only my mother and I. But I I knew my father through his record collection. He had Led Zeppelin, Cat Stevens, Pink Floyd in his collection. So I was listening to that at a very young age. And he also had two boxes of symphonies, one by Tchaikovsky and the other by Beethoven. And I loved rock and roll, but there was something in classical music that I felt so freeing emotionally. The tracks were, you know, which I found out were movements, were not four-minute limit tracks. They were sometimes 24, sometimes 18, and there didn't seem to be a limit of what emotions were expressed. So I thought, my goodness, this this felt more rebellious to me than rock and roll. And there was something that touched me um, spiritually in Beethoven's music. And um, I think it freed me emotionally. I was a very shy kid, and um, I didn't even like the sound of my own voice when I was a kid. uh, To say hi to someone was a big deal, but I wanted to communicate with people. And I did that through my love of music. So anytime anybody would come over, instead of shaking hands and saying hi, I would just go directly to the piano and just by that initial meeting and that initial uh, impression, I would just serenade that person. And then that was what broke the ice. And for me, what broke the emotional ice in my life was listening to Beethoven. There was something that was so human about that music. There was defiance, there was anger. It was not always pleasant, but sometimes it was very vulnerable, very tender. There was something that was um, truthful about what I heard and ungarnished. So that was my initial impression of Beethoven, and I wanted to know more after hearing the symphonies. And then I heard the piano sonatas two years later. It was a gold box set devoted to one composer and one instrument. And so I devoted a day to listening to that because I I knew I couldn't stop at just one. You were five at that age? Yeah, I was five. And from the first LP to the 13th, by, by, by the time um, I listened to the 13th, I realized that I didn't have any, 
I think um, I sometimes heard knocks on the door saying, hey, you, you should probably eat something. So there, there were breaks, you know, uh, for, 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 for lunch and dinner. But if, if, if it was not for that knock, I think I would have just been in my bedroom with my uh, portable record player just listening one after the other. I was just was going through it like a box of chocolates. I guess that's the only analogy I could come up with. You just couldn't stop at just one. And every flavor was different. Every center was different. So you just uh, looked forward to what, you know, what was going to happen next. And it was that, uh, that day that inspired me to be a concert pianist. And then my journey with Beethoven truly began. That's an unbelievable story. See, when I was five, I think the only thing I was clamoring to my mom for was like more juice. <laughs> what did she think at the time? How, how did she respond to that experience? She was supportive from the very beginning. Um, I came from a family of music lovers and uh, a very eclectic background. So my mother knew this is what made me happy. This is what made my heart beat. And she knew this is what I wanted to do. So she was always encouraging me to follow my dream from the very beginning. Well, you've sort of taken that experience of listening so intently and so almost innocently to all of the sonatas in one go, and you've replicated that as a performer. Uh, was it in 2010 that you first performed a sonatathon? The first cycle I did was 2010. That was in Ottawa. It was um, I wanted to do it as a sonatathon, but um, I think um, the um, organization was testing the waters, so they um, stretched it out to five days. Can you explain what the sonatathon is? So, sonatathon was a term coined by the presenter in Princeton. Basically, it's a marathon concert where the performance starts from 10 o'clock in the morning and ends at 11 o'clock at night, and I go through all of the Beethoven piano sonatas. Sonatathon, to me, felt more of what I was trying to express than a marathon concert. I I was not trying to break a record. I wasn't trying to um, test endurance. I was just simply wanting to share with the audience that initial impression of hearing the sonatas for the first time. That first initial day of what inspired me to become a pianist, that's what the sonatathon is is still about. You've You've done a lot of these now. What sort of insights do you get when you play them in a continuous way rather than piecemeal? I think that um, more than any body of work, the sonatas are seamless when it comes uh, to um, playing the, you know, one sonata, especially playing it in chronological order. There is a story, there is a journey, almost a 25 or so journey from the young Beethoven to um, the late Beethoven. Basically, um, it's a life experience. Imagine you're um, spending a day with a compelling personality and you get to know their life story and you just let him or her talk and you get to know so much about what makes that person tick just by being in their company and um, what inspires them. And later on, you're discussing philosophy. You're talking about um, the deep questions of life right from the very end. And from that experience with that person, you get to know a lot about yourself. That was my journey with Beethoven. I felt like playing those sonatas in one day and with um, different audiences, I knew so much about who I was as a musician, as a human being, and 
from, you know, and from the audience point of view, too, because we were all in communion together. You've said earlier in this interview and many, many times before that Beethoven represents that amazing range of human emotions, that there's there's no emotion that we feel as people that isn't touched and examined and dissected and explored in Beethoven. Uh, 2020 was supposed to be this great year of celebrating Beethoven in the concert hall uh, for his 250th birth anniversary. Do you find it ironic, maybe, that this milestone in Beethoven's legacy coincides with a year that has forced humankind writ large to grapple with unprecedented aspects and tests of its own humanity? That's when you really believe in um, some variation of cosmos with what is going on and the unrest that everyone is is, um, experiencing throughout the world and what people are marching for. I saw footage of people marching for what is right, for decency, for humanity. And I heard the Ode to Joy theme and just that feeling that everyone has the capacity to love one another and why is it taught that we need to hate one another? Switching gears a little bit, like Beethoven, you are also a composer, and the piano looms large in your work. Last year, you released an album uh, with the Chinake Orchestra that featured both your piano sonata and also uh, a suite for piano and orchestra called Callaloo. First of all, can you explain what Callaloo is in its non-musical context? There are two definitions in the non-musical context. So um, the first context is very well known. Kalalu is um, is a stew comprised of taro leaves or spinach or you know greens, and you put in coconut milk. You put in various spices and you mix it up as, in a simmer. You blend it. You could put um, tofu. You could put shrimp. You could put crab. And it's absolutely delicious. If, uh, every time I go to Trinidad, that's that's <laughs> that's that's what I want to have for lunch, dinner, and breakfast. It's just incredible. And um, I know it's it's dangerously good. It's dangerously good. So that's that's the famous definition. The other definition is that the community of Trinidad is comprised of French, Spanish, and African roots, and all of these various spices in one stew. So um, Trinidadians call themselves a Kalalu. And musically, as a classical musician, I was always inspired by Calypso when I would compose. There's always a little Trinidadian spice in whatever music that I write. That Kalalu, I I wanted to write that suite for a very, very long time. And um, the ideas just came after my last visit. You know, I'm I'm, I'm way overdue to um, go back to Trinidad, but it was my first carnaval in Trinidad. And being surrounded by the gorgeous music of Trinidad, seeing um, Panorama, which is a medley for um, steel band, um, Mentos, um, old-fashioned Mentos, um, Soca, which is Soul Calypso, all of these various... um, and and it's a competition, so um, bands compete for the prize, and um, Calypsonians compete for the grand prize at the end, and everyone has to bring their best. And it is a very, very democratic music because um, it's the act that gets the wildest cheers 
that wins. And so with um, Soka, that's why the the last movement of Kalalu is so wild, is because it, it, it is designed to make the audience go absolutely bonkers at the end. So the finale is um, shamelessly bombastic and celebra- celebratory and virtuosic and uh, rhythmic and loud. <laughs> Has it had that success with audiences that you wanted? It has. I must say, I cannot be modest about this. I'm wondering if you'd be comfortable with talking just sort of generally about your experiences as a black classical musician inside and outside of the concert hall. Of course. Um, In the last few weeks, you've been vocal in your support of Black Lives Matter uh, on social media, like the clarinetist Anthony McGill and many other great musicians, you took two knees and performed a beautiful, heartbreaking arrangement of Lift Every Voice and Sing. Um, You've also written a number of posts about how you're constantly questioned as a man of color about your accomplishments. And uh, you finished one by saying, uh, this is the music I love, this is the music I'm going to play, And despite racial profiling and preconceived notions of what kind of pianist I should be by how I look, I'm here to stay. Yeah. Could you maybe elaborate about how racial profiling and preconceived notions and the systemic biases of the classical world have affected you and your career so far? When I was five, my mom was, um, knowing that I wanted a piano teacher, was um, trying to see who would be the best piano teacher, and we were not getting any help whatsoever. There was a prominent piano teacher who was saying, why do you want me to teach your son? And then um, I had a recorder teacher who taught me how to sight read, and she was the one who was begging um, a piano teacher that I had for quite a long time, please, will you please take Stuart as one of your students? And after uh, enough pleading, he finally relented, and I was a student for around seven years. During that time, I was learning a lot of different pieces, but I wanted to learn Beethoven because that was my first love. And there were so many people who say, don't play Beethoven. Why don't you play Rowley? Why don't you learn Cat and the Mouse? Why don't you learn Rhapsody in Blue? All these are amazing pieces, but I felt like they wanted to box me into a category where I was only playing a certain kind of piece of classical music, and I didn't want to be boxed in. I wanted to play those pieces as well as other pieces. And so... It didn't dawn on me that they were boxing me in until I said, I I have an interest in playing Brahms. I have an interest of playing Beethoven. And they kept on saying, you're not ready. You're not ready. You're not ready. Here's Gershwin's Concerto in F. Hmm. And everything just felt very, very, very strange. Then, you know, even um, trying to find support in having masterclasses with Leon Fleischer was a battle. And I think the only reason why I kept on being invited back to um, play for Leon Fleischer was the fact that a lot of the students didn't have their pieces ready. So they would be calling my mom and saying, does Stuart have anything? We have some open space here. Is there anything that Stuart could play that, that could fill in the time? And I always had a piece ready. So that's how I got to know Mr. Fleischer, study with Mr. Fleischer, and be inspired by the great mind that was Leon Fleischer. 
was just because of, you know, it was all due to gut feeling. We had absolute, well, both my mother and I had no mentors, no support, no guides. And there was something in the classical industry that was very classist as well as racist because my mom, a very well-educated woman, is a school teacher, but they always treated her like she was a single parent. My mom was not a single parent. My mom and dad married, and I didn't know my dad uh, simply uh, because he died a month before I was born. But there was that prejudice, and they were trying to create their own narrative of our lives, even though they didn't know anything about us. So there was that struggle. Then I read two books, Steve Lopez's um, The Soloist and um, George Walker's um, autobiography about his life and the um, challenges that he had as a black classical musician. And somehow it was those two books that became my guide as to, you know, you know, certain people in the industry, what road they wanted me on. And so I was going to be defiant. And that's how Beethoven re-entered my life. That sense of defiance, that sense of this is what I want to do. This is the music that I want to play. And I will not have any uh, road dictated to me. I was going to follow my path. But that's when I finally understood the music of Beethoven because Beethoven struggled. And his life was all about struggling um, the fates, quote, quote. Whether, it was not, whether or not it was the fates of him um, not hearing and the, or the fates of, you know, uh, a system which still thought of musicians as servants and not belonging or, or not key figures in a society. There are so many things that Beethoven was battling, just like I was battling. And so that's when I thought, you know what, this is, this is the time to record these sonatas. So I recorded them. And when, uh, when I recorded them, there was a lot of angry backlash that I didn't understand. I'm thinking to myself, what's so revolutionary about what I'm doing? I am recording works that Vladimir Ashkenazi, that Artur Schnabel, countless pianists have recorded these works. What's so, what's so special about me wanting to do the same thing? And then when I did the um, Sonatathon and wanting to present it my own way, no matter how many times I told people this is the way I first discovered the music and I wanted to just share that part of myself with the audience. Oh, you're a stunt man. You're this, you're that. And I thought, oh, goodness, I don't... I, 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 I was a little disheartened. I still went and did it. I went to my belief. I still trusted my gut feeling. But the significance of what I was doing didn't dawn on me until I found out that I am the first and only black classical pianist to have recorded the Beethoven complete sonatas, the Diabelli variations, and the concerti. And it's when I discovered that, no one told me. I was so shocked. No one told me that this was a little bit of history I probably made, that everything seemed to all the questions that I had before of why was I being treated that way, somehow that, that all made sense now. Something we've been talking a lot about at WQXR in our offices um, is, is how, do you, how do we address systemic racism in a lasting way, uh, not just as a token or a temporary gesture, uh, but in a way that informs how we think, how we act, how we work from here on out. Um, do you see a future in which the concert hall is not just an equitable space, but 
a place where we can practice anti-racism? I think it's definitely possible. You know, there's so many variations of um, how to answer that question. I think when Gandhi was asked, what do you think of Western civilization? He answered, I think it's a great idea. <laughs> what do you think of classical music? What do you think of um, a world where every culture and every race belongs to this classical music world? I say, that's a very good idea. And it is very easy it's just about loving that idea, and from there, projects, programs, and everything will follow. It's about knowing what the significance of Black Lives Matter is, instead of just pushing it away and blindly saying all lives matter without knowing what the significance is of Black Lives Matter. Well, now we're, we're in a way, being given this unprecedented opportunity as a, as a classical community, I guess, uh, to reset, to rethink the way that we're doing everything. No stone in our universe has been left unturned by the pandemic and the events of this year. What changes, big, small, hypothetical, actual, would you like to see when concert halls reopen? I guess just the memory of what we went through together. You know, this coronavirus, I think um, there were a lot of, you know, very disappointing and frustrating things we went through, but hopefully we also went through a cleansing of sorts where we find out exactly what is important, what is what is truly valuable, and build on that memory so that, you know, a, a better chapter comes our way. That was my guest, the pianist and composer Stuart Goodyear. His new album of Beethoven piano concertos is out now on Orchid Classics. This interview was produced by Max Fine and Rosa Gollin. Our technical producer is George Wellington, and our executive producer is Lucas Krohn Grimberga. I'm Zev Kane. Thanks for listening. Orchid.